You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined once again in our studio setup with Billy Galenko. How are you doing, Billy? Good. We survived a tropical storm, just kicking it off with weather as usual. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. That's kind of, I bet that was a little bit scary for you and your, do you have an indoor seating area or is everything out, outdoors in LA at your house? Yeah, no, we have room inside, but uh, it's people not just are, tents. <laughs> no, or patios. No, people, it was funny <laughs> though. People were battening down the hatches. Like it was going to be some intense, intense thing. It was just kind of rainy. They canceled school the next day, which is funny because it was bright and sunny and like literally not a cloud in the sky after like noon. So that was pretty funny. But I guess out in Palm Springs, they actually got a year's worth of rain, which is like six inches. So that's kind of intense. Wow. Yeah, we used to get school canceled for high winds and rain sometimes. So I think we had had school canceled for less back then. I think it's because we have a lot of uh, like windy country roads where I grew up and they were always afraid mm. that the bus would just blow over if the wind was too bad. <laughs> so there were a few <laughs> times where we had big storms coming. The wind was like just not even that bad, 40 mile an hour, and they would cancel school. <laughs> Apart from these in- thrilling updates, we have some new things coming to the Vint podcast. Do you want to tell folks about some of the tasting note stuff that we're going to start doing? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been thinking for a while now that we talk about a lot of these wines and whiskeys that we've had, but there's no way for anybody to really kind of either dive in and learn more about them or really go back and kind of try to remember them maybe after listening to the podcast. So we're going to roll out a blog that basically tracks and logs the whiskeys and wines that we discuss on the podcast. We'll have quick tasting notes there. Nothing really formal, but it'll be our general thoughts on the whiskeys and the wines. And we'll basically list them so that you can double check and maybe go and explore them more on your own after the podcast. So I think that is one thing we're going to be adding. And then another aspect similar, but different will be what we're drinking this weekend. It'll be kind of a weekly wine highlight. And for those who are on the mailing list, you will know this is included in our Friday email each week. But now for Vint podcast listeners, what we're going to do is give you an early kind of early access to the what we're drinking section. And I'll obviously be giving a little bit more, more color to that as well. So it'll be kind of an enhancement of what you might be seeing if you're already on the mailing list on Fridays. And we'll definitely try and work more whiskey, scotch, bourbon, maybe some other spirits into those notes and emails as well. Trying to have more whiskey folks on the podcast over the next course of episodes. We've definitely been predominantly wine focused. So it was cool to have Scott last week, who I think was our first whiskey producer. So. Yeah, producer. I think so. Aside from Andre Houston Mack, who makes his own rye now. Don't forget that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But purely whiskey. Yeah, that was the first one. Nice. Yeah. So if any listeners have, if you take a look at the tasting notes as we go and you have either comments about them or maybe are looking to acquire some of those wines or whiskeys, we can also help you with that on a one-off basis. You can email us at the emails found in the description of the podcast. And if we can get a hold of something for you, we can definitely help to direct you to that. I know Billy drinks a lot of obscure things, so might be a little bit of a hunt. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll definitely be 
talking about a lot of random things. It may not be the most accessible, not for price sake, but literally just because they're made in somebody's cavevery in their garage. But who knows? We'll cover everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll put my neighbor as a Concord grape. Yeah. Stuff that he made at home in his bathtub. Oh, but. yeah. My, my Zinfandel. I still I got to find those six bottles. It'll be the five-year anniversary of me making that. But on a different note, so this was partially inspired by tastings that we've done. And on that note, I went to a tasting last week where I had a bunch of Sancerre and Pui Fume. Pui Fume. God, I can always say that word wrong. Um, so Sauvignon Blancs from France, Brady. I don't think I've told you about this yet. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's one of the regional names that I always shy away from. I just point to it and say this one because I'm like, Pui Fume. yeah so i didn't really know until studying wine like when i started studying wine you first hear about sancerre and that is the most well-known i guess sauvignon blanc in france i mean some will argue that bordeaux blanc but right next door is pori fume and most wine connoisseurs know they're both as as well known and i was talking to the guy at the tasting last week and somebody was actually asking him why sancerre is better known is it better quality? And he's, no, it's not better. It's just easier to say. So that's the reason it became way more famous. That's funny. So What's even easier to say? <laughs> it's New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want something that tastes completely different. But um, yeah. 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 So I had, let's see, let me count them. Six, six different wines. And the highlight, I guess, was a Domaine Didier Dagenau, which is one of the most famous Pui Fume producers around. So basically, we, we've sold a lot of his wine on the marketplace. So I've been looking at it. And some of them, the pure sang, P-U-R-S-A-N-G of his goes for a lot of money. So I, I have a $100 bottling called Blanc, etc. But I have tasting notes for the six wines. There were two from, let's see, three from Sancerre and two from Puy Fume, And then one from an area called Coteau de Genois Blanc. Coteau de Genois is like just northeast of Puy Fume, which I thought was interesting. It's basically... These two regions are becoming so popular that they're now having the outer regions producing similar quality wines, but at a more approachable price point. So that was really interesting. Kind of walk through that little region because the wines vary differently. Some were more herbaceous. Some were kind of almost like round because they had some time in barrel, but not new barrel. So I'll include all my tasting notes for these six wines in the blog that'll be published over the next week if anybody wants to check them out. But yeah, there were wines from... Let's see, Christophe Monger and Coteau de Genois, Domaine Taubardet, Domaine Dominique and Janine Crochet. Vincent Pinard was another big name, and Henri Bourgeois, along with the Dagenau. So we got some really cool ones and a little bit of age on them, too. And that was pretty exciting. So I'm happy to share those with everyone. Yeah, that's always an interesting exploration. I think I've only had older Sauvignon Blanc once do you remember when we were at a barbersville in virginia i believe mm-hmm. it was like a seven-year-old seven-year-old blanc that was like the current release i think that was the only one of the only times i've had seven-year-old blanc that wasn't like less than three years old <laughs> yeah it might have been william kelly who was complaining about it but back in the day bordeaux blanc which is the still the dry ones or predominantly seven-year-old blanc with some semillon and some other stuff they were meant to age and some of those age beautifully and then they tried to start replicating more of the New Zealand style and got away from kind of what they were, their bread and butter, and they don't age quite like they used to. But those also can age. One fun, one interesting thing I learned about Dagenau, I always knew he was famous. Apparently, the founder, Didier himself, is now run by his son and daughter, and his sons are becoming famous as the winemaker. Apparently, he died in like an ultralight 
accident one of those like basically oh, wow. a hang glider with a motor the guy was like yeah a small like airplane accident because he was they were like this area is known and it had these mountains really give the wine a certain texture and the different like the silex soils and limestone they're like but it also was his downfall he crashed into the mountain <laughs> wow that's that's kind of weird but so now i can't think about it in the same way it's an interesting the most famous wine and a death-defying story like an evil knievel twist to it so, I mean, didn't defy death, but a death story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> death defining. <laughs> <laughs> defining. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it, if you'd say name a wine aged in oak, probably Sauvignon Blanc, just off the top of the top 20 grape varietals, would be the last one that I would say. Does oak influence affect potential ageability of wine? Does it impart some like tannic? structure like body to the wine that helps it to age a little bit more i was gonna say don't tell that to robert mandavi he brought the barrel aged sauvignon blanc to the u.s no it can there's two schools of thought here one is like what you were saying a lot of this is like more neutral barrel so it's not imparting as much direct flavor from the barrel itself and in, in that same vein not as much tannin it can a little bit some of it's more the interaction with oxygen over time that helps round out certain parts of the wine. So it might round off some of like certain fruity components, but it also the interaction with oxygen might allow other, I guess you'll lose kind of the fruity esters, but it kind of rounds it out and allows the wine itself to age better in bottle. Cause there are some elements that basically don't do well when they're interacting with oxygen. If they're made in a completely like oxygen free environment throughout their whole environment, like the whole time. Oh, so basically, yeah. Yeah. So it's like between the lees stirring, which also gives it more body and some of this oxygen interaction, these wines are actually better set up to age longer in the bottle and develop in a different way because they're not relying exclusively on primary fruit and like basically floral notes. Because if that's what you're all you're preserving, as soon as oxygen hits that, you're just going to be left with acid. What was his name? The guy, the master of wine who came on. That's what I was going to um, say. Yeah. The acid without a, or. Sauvignon Blanc without acid is pointless. Yeah, Nick Jackson, MW. Yeah, That's so right. so you need the acid, but this basically would be like, that would just be acid and no floral notes. Here, they get, got more development. There is, you could definitely got like a, almost a yeasty nature. Some of these had like nutty notes, almost like a honeyed aspect to them, which was really interesting and you don't typically think of for Sauvignon Blanc unless you're looking at more of these higher quality barrel um, and the, you're, it's large barrel too, fooders, you know, the really big ones. You're not just barriques. So it all imparts stuff, but it can set it up for better long-term aging, actually. Yeah, not that I drink too much Bordeaux Blanc, I wouldn't say. But if you had asked me before you are talking about this, if you had asked me, the, I would have assumed that it was like 90% Semillon most of the wines and basically no Semillon Blanc, even though I knew that that was included. Is that not the case? Is it mainly, could it be one or the other in a lot of these wines or is it pretty balanced or is it usually pretty much all Semillon and then the acid from the Semillon Blanc? It's changing in modern times, but traditionally and still very much in most cases, the still wines are mostly Semillon Blanc with some Semillon and very uh, little, if any, Muscadel. Whereas, like the Sauterne and like the Batritized wines are mostly Semillon with a little bit of Semillon uh, Blanc. Okay. And then some Muscadel. So, yeah. You have it. That's definitely, back. yeah. The Botrytis, yeah. The sweeter stuff is definitely, I guess, what I more would have in mind when thinking about those wines. And so, I guess 
yeah, the Semyon, that's where I got that from, probably. And that's where the acid from the Savion Blanc helps brighten those up. Oh, understood. Yeah, because nice. it kind of gets worked through a little bit by the botrytis. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, cool. Yeah, I don't know if our if our guest today... Deal, I guess he definitely deals in some Bordeaux Blanc. I didn't look through on on the site, but I would imagine so. It definitely has a few producers that he works with in Bordeaux. We're, we're talking about Kevin Sitters, the founder and president of VinConnect out of Virginia, who we have on today. Kevin's actually a friend, has been a friend of Vint for some time, even before really our initial launch and did some advising with Nick, our founder in the early days and has been a good partner and friend. And so it's great to have him on and talk about his business and trying to provide more access to producers across the pond, mainly in France, focusing on Burgundy and Bordeaux, but he has relationships with producers in a number of different countries and is providing more access to consumers here in the States. Yeah, Kevin was actually one of the first people I talked about when I considered joining Vint and being a part of the company. I actually called him and Adam, who's now our, our CEO, head of wine. So that was it was cool. We have known Kevin for a long time. He brings an interesting perspective. <clears throat> he kind of got into wine after investment banking, and he'll talk about that. But it has more of a passion as well as like a business opportunity. So it's great to hear him kind of talk about what he's doing because he's it was more something he's always been interested in rather than just purely a business opportunity. You can really hear the passion come through and the interest when he's talking about the producers he works with and his wines. Yeah. And I got some good recommendations after talking with Kevin. I think one other time when we had talked with him, we had talked about Chateau Moussard, but we talk about it again for a decent amount of time on this interview and went and purchased some bottles after that. So yeah, Definitely cool to hear about some of the different producers that he's involved with. And really what he's doing is facilitating a way for producers to be in contact newsletter style sort of allocation list with the producers that yeah don't usually have programs set up the way that we do here in the States where you kind of get on an allocation list on a newsletter distribution list with producers here. So he's trying to facilitate that kind of back and forth relationship. And yeah, I signed up for a couple different lists and he certainly knows a lot about the producers that he works with so it's cool to hear him talk about some of those for sure 100 percent. i encourage everybody to check those out anybody who's supporting small producers or producers making wine the right way in europe is always a fan in my book or i'm always a fan of them so definitely check out vin connect and enjoy our interview with kevin sitters Hey, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're a long-term or long-term, long-time Vint Pod listener and just a friend of Vint in general, right? <laughs> yes, I've known you guys for a long time and I'm pleased to finally have a chance to sit down and talk in the podcast context. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's exciting to have someone who's kind of a part of the Virginia wine scene as well as a merchant sort of in the area and I want you to tell a little bit about VinConnect and just maybe some of your early journey into wine. You don't need to go back 75 years, but as far as you want to share. Yeah. Sure. So VinConnect, the business I started has been around for about 12 years. And what we do is help consumers get access to wines from a bunch of the top wineries in Europe. Flipped around, we help 
Europe's best wineries sell direct to consumers in the U.S. in many of the same ways that U.S. wineries do. Historically, that hasn't really been a thing. It's not legal for European wineries to sell direct in the U.S. in the same way that domestic wineries do, but that really puts them at a strategic and competitive disadvantage. And so we created VinConnect to find a way to help them do that so that customers can be on the mailing lists of Europe's best wineries in the same way they are with America's best wineries, Silver Oak, Camus, Chateau Montalena, Harlan, people like that. Now you can do that same thing for Clos de Tarte and Burgundy or Domaine de Pegot and Chateau de the Pop or Laurence Ponceau and Burgundy, Masolino and Barolo, things like that. Yeah. So when you go to Europe and you visit a producer, they'll bring around and ask if you want to purchase and they'll show you all the shipping options and everything. They'll help you facilitate that. Is the only difference between what you're able to do in terms of sending wine back to the States and doing that, I guess, online through some kind of allocation methodology, the only difference between those two, is it just that the transaction is happening on their soil versus over the internet? Or why is there such, why is there a difference? It's a, sort of a complicated and, and multi-layered question. Yep. So it's not legal for European wineries to ship direct in the U.S. Now, it doesn't mean they can't do it. It's relatively straightforward for them or for you to walk down to mailboxes, et cetera, in Genoa right. and send a box and call it olive oil and sort of have it show up here. And people will periodically do that when they're traveling over there, if the wineries are able to sell at the cellar door. And not all of them do. More do now than used to, but certainly still not everybody does. But the European wineries don't have, historically have not had nearly as much of an orientation around commerce and marketing as we do here in the US. And so it's very rare to find one that has a tasting room that's open to the public with a staff with a bunch of inventory that's available for sale and a staff that's working there that can help you ship at home. And even if you they did have all of those things, there's no way for you to sort of buy the next thing from them, generally speaking. So six months from now, you want to buy some more. Almost it's very rare for wineries over there to have an online shop or to have any kind of integration into e-commerce and then fulfillment, again, because it's technically illegal for them to do that. So Certain wineries will have pieces of that, but it's very rare to find one that has sort of an integrated effort in that way. Now, what we do, what we spend a lot of time doing is in addition to managing all of the logistics and compliance to, to deliver those goods in a way that makes it, it actually legal for the wineries to do it in sort of a scalable, robust, sustainable fashion, we also spend a lot of time just training them about how to think about how do you communicate with customers? What kinds of things do they expect you to, to say to them? How frequently do you talk to them? What products should you offer? How do you price them? Sort of that whole direct-to-consumer approach to marketing in general is something that, again, it just they don't think about it that way over there. And so we spend a lot of time with sort of general purpose consulting on ways that they should do that. And as part of that, things like how you would arrange a tasting room, should you have products for sale, how would you price them, and those sorts of things are, are things that we help them with as well. But at the end of the day, for the customer in the U.S., you know what you experience if you're visiting a VinConnect partner winery is the same thing you'd experience in Napa. So you visit the winery, says, hey, if you've enjoyed what you tasted, give us your email and we'll put you on our mailing list. 
you go back to the U.S. three months from now, you get an email from the winery that says, hey, the new vintage of Barolo is available. Here are the wines for you to purchase. You fill out a form and send it off. And six weeks later, you get a box at your door with the wine delivered from Italy. And that's the stuff that, you know, where we sort of facilitate not only the transaction, but the logistics. Nice. How did you, so you're taking a step back though. You didn't really, this sounds really complex and like in the weeds, like you've been working in wine in a while and you took your knowledge from that and brought it to this, but you weren't in wine before you were in like finance. How did you, can you give us a little bit of that and like how much, I guess you just took your wine passion and made it into a business? It's sort of, yeah. I spent about 20 years as an investment banker and made a sort of a good career of that and then kind of decided to make a life change that included a relocation from San Francisco to the East Coast in Virginia. And in the process of that, I had been involved in a couple of different sort of wine-related activities. I took some classes on commerce and wine. I negotiated over the course of about 18 months to try to buy a wine import services business. I helped started sort of a newfangled retail wine concept with some friends here in Charlottesville. And so even though I wasn't necessarily of the wine world in the way that a lot of people are, I certainly had some different sort of views into it. And then combine that with being an active mailing list customer of wineries in Napa and stumbled on the idea of why this thing didn't exist for wineries in Europe. And then just decided to go try to figure that out for myself and, and was able to over the course of about a year of research and work and conversations with attorneys and things like that, was able to sort of put the pieces together for turning this into an actual business and a legally compliant effort. But it's amazing. I mean, in the years since I've started VinConnect, um, I probably had 25 different people over the years tell me, man, I thought about doing that and somebody should have done that a long time ago. And I just don't know. It's been waiting to happen. I don't know why no one ever figured that out before. So I don't know, maybe it was sort of an obvious thing and I just happened to be the guy to put the pieces together the right way. I'm not sure, but I'm glad we got here. So, What percentage of the European wine market do you think is completely excluded from folks who live domestically here in the US to have wine shipped, just say from some retailer in New York or California or somewhere, are we only seeing maybe 5 or 10% of the wines that might be available over there if they were widely well, distributed? You know, I mean, that's an interesting question. There are sort of two pieces to that. So so certainly that's an issue. I mean, I couldn't even tell you what percentage of the wines made in Europe actually get exported to the US in terms of yeah. number of SKUs. I mean, it's single digit percentages, maybe. Sure. Now, the vast majority of the Best wine made in Europe gets exported to the U.S. The U.S. is, for most of our wineries, I mean, the U.S. is the single biggest market for wine in the world, certainly the single biggest market for fine wine. And most of the top wineries all throughout Europe, the U.S. is their single largest market. In some cases, maybe the domestic market in the U.S. is number two. So if you're making great wine and trying to charge a hundred or more dollars a bottle for it, you're selling, you, you've, there's a pretty good chance you found a way to get into the U.S. market and tap into that here. So at that end of the market, most of the best wine comes to the U.S. That being said, your ability to access it, as you observed, is contingent on the vagaries of the U.S. alcohol distribution legal system, which is complicated as all get out. And so many of the best wines aren't available all across the U.S., or are available in a limited fashion in certain places. Many of the kinds of collectible things that that our customers are interested in that are the kind of things that 
that you guys are putting investments together around. The available quantities of those are very small. They're highly allocated. And customers, depending on where you live, either have a hard time finding them or it's almost impossible. And so the mailing list vehicle and the ability to connect directly with the wineries that produce some of those kinds of wines is an important way for people who are really passionate about certain specific brands, whether that's to collect them or to have them every year on their anniversary or sort of whatever their reason is, that having the access that is provided by the mailing list kind of relationship is really increasingly important to American customers. And at the same time, even the wineries in Europe that are making wines that are hugely in demand throughout the world and specifically in the U.S., Sometimes they'll say to us, well, why do I need a mailing list? I already sell all my stuff, everything I make anyway. And our answer to that is you're a Burgundian wine producer. You make one barrel of Moussigny every year and it sort of goes out to the wind. Do you want that to be consumed by the person in a restaurant who says, bring me the most expensive bottle on the list? Or do you want that wine to be consumed by someone who knows your wines intimately, who visits you every year, who's hugely passionate about the art that you create and who will really appreciate this special tiny quantity that you make. And when you explain that, sort of the light bulb often goes on and they go, okay, I get it. Yeah, that makes total sense. So it really is good for both the wineries and and the consumers who are interested. Yeah. Yeah. It it makes sense to me how a producer over there would be really interested in working with you. I want to hear about what's it like in the reverse? Would I come to you and say, I visited France last month. We went to a couple of producers that I had never heard of. How can I get wines consistently from them? Is that a type of conversation that you often have with folks or is that not really how that relationship works? No, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, okay. we have a roster of wineries with whom we work. And so if you want to buy Pago Chateauneuf to Pop, you, we would love would know that they have a mailing list and the mailing list is a great way to do that. Now, that one's also available in retail in the U.S. in yep. various places, again, to a, a greater or lesser degree. But, but you know, the best and easiest way to have that direct relationship with the winery and make sure you get access to things like large formats, things like the special super high-end tiny production cuvées. They make a, a red called Cuvée de Capo and a white called Cuvée Tempo that are a couple of barrels of each. Those kinds of items, you'll almost never find those in retail in the U.S. But being on the mailing list, you get access to those kinds of things. And so the combination of convenience for the customer in terms of the new vintage finds you, you don't have to go find it. Access to things you might not otherwise get. And then increasingly important is provenance, knowing that the wine is coming direct from the winery when you're paying $800 a bottle for a 100-point magnum of Cuvée de Capo, it's nice to know that it's traveled in temperature-controlled conditions, it's come directly from the winery, it's going straight to your door, as opposed to finding it at a retailer all the way across the country and kind of who knows how it got to the U.S. and some of those, or how it's been treated and those sorts of things. So, so yeah, it's just a matter of specifically... Uh, individual wineries who offer this sort of mailing list service to their American consumers and were the sort of vehicle for them to do that. So what we, if you are collecting and love the wines of a particular estate and they don't have a direct-to-consumer program, the way to do it is to bother them to make sure that they call VinConnect and set something up so people like you can get the access to the wines that you want. 
So going down the allocation model questions, is it the same type of thing if I want to get on the list for high-end California places? Do you have an enormous waiting list or are certain producers like if you're VinConnect, like VIP? Like I've always thought about this. Can I just sign up and get access to the best stuff right away? You can sign up for as many mailing lists as you want. And it doesn't cost anything. There's no obligation to buy anything. We have 80 producers in total right now. We don't have any wineries yet for whom we have wait lists. But, you know, as for certain California states, Harlan, Screaming Eagle, guys like that, you know, they sell out 100% of their production direct to consumer every year. And they've got years and years worth of waiting lists of people lined up. So we don't have situations like that yet. That being said, this direct-to-consumer channel. The U.S. is one market of the 50 different countries that our wineries sell in, for example. Maybe the biggest market, but still one market. And the direct-to-consumer channel is just one piece of their entire channel in the U.S. And so the total volume that goes direct-to-consumer is just a sort of a complementary piece of their global distribution efforts, as opposed to somebody like Harlan or Screaming Eagle, where it's kind of just about everything. And so we do have situations, for example, the last couple of years in Burgundy, where 2020 and 21 were years of very diminished production volumes due to hail and weather and mildew and things like that. And for a couple of our winery partners, they they weren't able to allocate any wine to the mailing list in the U.S. in those two vintages. With other partners, they were able to. And the mailing list was about the only way you could find some of the some of the wines of some of our partners in Burgundy because so little of it otherwise came to the U.S. or maybe it just went directly to restaurants and didn't even end up in retail. So that uh, there is a, a big benefit in terms of access in a lot of cases, sort of just depending on the winery and the vintage and other factors. So your focus in terms of like your regional focus of wineries, can you talk a little bit about that and sort of, I guess, the particular focus on Burgundy. I also saw your relationship with Santo in Greece and Gooseborne and Ridgeview, it looks like, in um, in England or the UK. I guess they're both in England. So yeah, kind of some in the mainstream, we got a bunch of Burgundy producers, but then also a few in some emerging regions. Yeah, so we're pretty well represented across Europe's major growing regions. For mm-hmm. us, unlike an importer We don't think about having a book or some sort of mix of regions or wine varieties or those sorts of things. We'll work with any winery that has a big following in the U.S. and a large demand of customers who would want to be on the mailing list. Um, And so the regions that you see represented for wineries that we work with are sort of what you would expect if you think about sort of collectible European wines. So Bordeaux and Burgundy, two big ones. We work with a number of producers in Piemonte and in Tuscany is probably the two major Italian regions for sort of collectible wines. But we also have a handful of wineries in Germany. As you noted, a couple of sparkling wine producers in England. We work with Chateau Moussard in Lebanon. We don't have any producers today in South Africa, for example, or New Zealand. But there isn't any reason why we couldn't or wouldn't. It's just a matter of finding wineries that have sort of big enough brand presence and existing demand in the U.S. market where we know that there would be interest in building a significant mailing list around those. When on that note, this the winery has come up multiple times on the podcast, especially by Bartholomew Broadbent, who said it was his favorite wine in the world. Chateau Moussard, how did that become so well known and yet 
well, wh- how did it become so well known? And yet, how have other Lebanese wines I not come, I guess, as close? There's not even like a second. We know DRC and then we know others. Like, how come we only know right. that one? Is it just Lebanon? It's a really good question, Billy. It, it starts with Musar making very consistent and systematic marketing efforts in the U.S. going back probably 50 years. They were the first, to to my knowledge, the first sort of notable Lebanese wine sort of broadly sold in in the U.S. market. And the winery for the better part of 30 or 40 or 50 years was run by a very dynamic gentleman, Serge Hoshar, Hoshar, who had a just a tremendous personality. And the frequency with which he would come to the U.S. market and the relationships that he was able to build, both with people in the channel, retailers, distributors, et cetera, as well as consumers when they would do consumer events. I mean, it really was the accumulated effort of 40 years of him coming to the U.S. and just pounding the pavement and shaking hands. And at the same time, of course, making fantastic wine. You can sort of do all the marketing you want, but if the product isn't very good, it doesn't help you a lot. And... And I think those factors really helped a lot. Getting the support of some of the seminal wine reviewers of the time back in the 70s and 80s, Michael Broadbent in the UK, Robert Parker in the US, getting the wine in front of them and getting their sort of support and encouragement to both consumers and the trade that, hey, you should pay attention to this. It's, it's, it really is worth, worth learning about and, and tasting. And then finally, I think the other contributing factor is those wines are made in a very distinctive style and flavor profile. And they not only taste different than things you taste other places, but they also are really singular. They just taste like themselves. And that distinctiveness, it's not necessarily for everybody, but they have a flavor that, you know, blind tasting or whatever there, even though the individual wines are very different characteristically, vintage to vintage, the variation is much broader than really almost any major fine winery I can think of. And yet they retain a distinctiveness that always tastes like Moussard. And because it's so distinctive and because so many people, I think, sort of gravitate toward it, it's just been the kind of thing you tasted and it, it connects with your brain in a different way and it's very memorable and for lots of people they find it delicious the prices have continued to be pretty reasonable current vintages for them still are in the 60s dollar per bottle which relative to where the price points on things like bordeaux and california wines have gone is still very accessible they haven't made 10 different single vineyard things and reserve wines and crazy double and triple price points they make a series of lower end wines, but Chateau Moussard, Red, White, and Rosé are the best thing they make. And those are the top of the line at kind of 60, 70 bucks. And that allows them to appeal to a pretty broad swath of the customer base. Why other people haven't been able to come behind that in terms of Lebanese wines? I mean, certainly you see more things from the Middle East in the U.S. market now than you probably ever have as a result of some culture and sophisticated palates and things like that. But still, no one's really been able to get anywhere near Musar in terms of market visibility. But for folks Hmm. who haven't tried them, I highly encourage you to seek them out. Like I said, the the prices are very accessible and the wines are very distinctive and interesting. And they age forever. They release late vintages, actually, periodically. They have a huge library, so you can find wines 
in from the 2000s, 90s, and 80s and stuff on restaurant wine lists and in retailers much more than you would from almost any other estate outside the U.S. And that's pretty cool as well. And yeah, not, not to linger too much on Musar, but do what are some of the distinctive features of their red wine? I see it's, I guess their flagship is a cab, a carignan. Am I right about that? Yeah. What are some um, of the distinctive like tasting notes? Not to put you on so, the spot. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's, so it's a red blend of generally cab and carignan or vedra, and then a handful of other things, including some indigenous varieties. Hmm. And so the blend really is pretty different than you'd find most anywhere else. I mean, you could argue maybe some folks in the Languedoc or Southern France are doing some sort of funky things like that. Yeah. The second thing is they have a tendency to have a real funkiness or barnyardiness or earthiness to varying degrees. And certain people's palates have a higher or lower sort of sensitivity to that. Some people find some of those flavors as appealing and adding to complexity. Other people on occasion find them a little bit off-putting, but nonetheless, there's a real distinctiveness there that really feels like they came from a, from a place that you can identify. And then I think the last thing that's super interesting about them is, like I said, the vintage variation is quite sizable, both in terms of the blend that they use, as well as just how the wines evolve over time. And so they all taste like Moussar, but, you know, some of them can go in the direction of almost Burgundy or sort of Beaujolais. And other ones are like very powerful, ripe California style, rich, fruity kinds of things. And so they're all unique and individual and different. And there's even some variation within vintages. So one of the years ago, we did a release for them of their whites, which are only made from indigenous varieties, which you'd never get anywhere else. And I was shipping some bottles to a customer. I was in the warehouse and our boxes have three bottles on each layer. And the three bottles from the same vintage that I was putting in the box were all three dramatically different colors of yellow. There was sort of light yellow, Mm -hmm. medium yellow, and dark yellow. And so I emailed the proprietor and I said, you know, what, geez, this is some, some variation here. You know, what if customers ask us about why these are so different, what do you want me to tell them? And he said, all of our wines are living things. Each of them evolve at their own rate. And that's sort of what you get when you get Moussar. <laughs> so, well, okay. <laughs> so it really is, uh, for them, it's a feature, not a bug. For other kinds of wineries, it might be viewed as a bug, but for them, it's definitely a feature. So I guess your, your average client looking for, Coming to you, signing up for the list, looking for wine, are receptive to some of these things? Or I guess does it, when I say receptive to these things, like looking to explore some producers that maybe they're not as familiar with? Or I think, can I you think describe typic- your average sign up person? Yeah, I think it's typically customers that are joining the winery mailing list are doing yeah. it because they already know and are familiar with that particular winery. Okay. They've they visited Cataliki di Sopra in Tuscany and had the wines and met the guy and Francesco was awesome. And of course I'd want to be on their mailing list. Or they had the wine in a restaurant here in the US and it was amazing. And they Googled where do I buy Clota Tart? And an ad came up and said, Hey, they have a mailing list, join the mailing list. So so we are very much connecting with or selling wine to people who've given us permission to email them and have specifically said what they want. So 
Anyone who'd sign up for the Musar list, you would think would have a pretty good understanding of what the wines are about or sort of what they're getting into in a sense. That being said, a customer might come to VinConnect to sign up for Conaliki di Sopra and then see the roster of other wineries with whom we work and go, oh, I've heard of this Musar thing. Somebody, my buddy told me that's cool wine. Maybe I should sign up for that one too and check it out. And so it's very easy for customers to to get exposure to a variety of other wineries that they're curious about, again, with sort of no obligation or anything, and have the opportunity to, every six months, get an email, learn about the wines that they make, learn about the vintages, learn more about the winery itself, and decide for themselves whether, hey, this new rosé that's being made by Elena Volk, I had that, I was, they had that at the table next to me at the restaurant last week, maybe I'll get some bottles of that, it sounds like it'd be really good. So, So it's predominantly people who are coming to buy the things that they know they want, but also have the opportunity to do some exploration beyond that with things they may have heard of, but may not be that familiar with. How have you found certain producers that you're working with? Do you have Elena Volk in your portfolio? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was going to say, so have you found people like for her, for example, that you might've started and they were kind of, their wines were top notch, but they were in a different priced here. And then now over time, they've kind of migrated up a bit because i remember studying for my certified exam and it like the recommend from psalms was like oh elena volk is like really high quality but like really affordable and now i go to buy her wines and they're like double what i was paying back then (laughs) every winery has their own sort of evolution of their product set and their pricing strategy i guess i would say and so those things just kind of evolve over time we've had some producers who went from not being able to sell out other wines to now they sell everything out. And so now it's time to move the price up because supply is fixed and demand is growing kind of thing. So it really depends. I I think having gone through a pretty significant inflationary period here in the last couple of years in terms of costs, I mean, things like glass bottles for wineries in Europe went up 50% two years ago and have not come down. Like it just, it's a step function. Everything's just that much more expensive labor and those kinds of things. So there has been definitely some price inflation to greater and lesser degrees sort of across all of fine wine, I would say. That being said, some wineries have been more aggressive than others in terms of doing things like creating new luxury cuvées for which they charge three times as much or making four single vineyard wines now that are double the price what the regular one would be and things like that. So there has many wines have very consciously gone down a path of sort of premiumization, if you want to call it that, finding ways to charge more for the things that they make. And oftentimes you would expect, and they certainly deliver on making more distinguished and distinctive products that they're charging more for. But other times, yeah, it could be as simple as, geez, this thing I bought three vintages ago is now is now 75% up from what I paid for last time. And you definitely see that, again, specifically in Burgundy over the last few years with the short crops in 20 and 21. I mean, most people just felt like they're only making half of what they made before and they just had to charge a lot more for it. Now, all industries, oftentimes prices go up and are stickier longer than the way they come back down on the other side. And so Oftentimes, as you go through these cycles, the trend kind of goes in one direction, unfortunately, most of the time. Nice. Well, I think her wines deserve it. So I'm happy for her. It's not like she's just <laughs> upcharging, but that was just something interesting. Yeah. Were you going to yeah. say something, Brittany? Yeah, I was just going to ask, you had mentioned starting on a project in Charlottesville. What was that? Was You said a retail project in Charlottesville? It wasn't Crush Pad, mm-hmm. was it? 
No, it was not. Although that's owned and run by a good friend of mine. Um, yeah, it's a great place. And we started a little business here called the Wine Guild of Charlottesville about a dozen years ago, maybe even longer than that, which is a bit of a sort of a newfangled retail concept, sort of a club and a tasting room and things like that, which has gone through a couple of different ownership instantiations and is alive and well and doing great today. So, What's your sort of current relationship or perspective on the Virginia wine sphere? Well, Virginia wine is that sort of a whole other topic. It's Indian been incredible year. for me to, uh, to in the time that I've lived here, so going on 13 or 14 years now, see the growth and evolution of the industry to over maybe 100 wineries, bonded wineries in Virginia when I got here 15 years ago, and there are 350 today or some crazy number like that. The growth of the industry has been amazing. The increased professionalism as a result of investment and technology and things like that has definitely raised the level of quality, I think, across the industry. That being said, for my dollar, to be honest with you, I'd rather drink European stuff, just sort of dollar for dollar. So much of the production here in a place like Virginia, which I think is probably similar to some of these other sort of secondary U.S. markets, New York State or Texas or places like that. So much of the production gets sold locally to sort of tourists. Not necessarily people from out of state, but, you know, going to the winery on a Saturday afternoon and sit around and drink a couple of bottles of things. And because of that desire from local people to support the local industry, which is fantastic, the wineries can charge very attractive prices to satisfy that demand in a way that it's just different for things like imported wineries to compete with. And so for my 40 or $50 a bottle, if I want to drink Cabernet Franc, I'll look to someplace in France more so than Nelson County in Virginia. But I don't begrudge those that do. And I think they increasingly do a better and better job. So it's fun to see the progress. And of course, I have lots of friends and relationships that are in the business in various ways here. And it's fun to have gotten to see them evolve and grow as well over that time. Yeah. Go ahead, Billy. No, I was going to shift gears. You keep asking your Virginia wine questions. I know you <laughs> no, have. <laughs> no, I don't want to get in a, any sort of spat with Kevin because I'm a Virginia wine advocate. Well, you are too, but I mean, I would, there's, there's reach, for, I would reach for the Virginia Cab Franc for the European style. Anyways, go, but, well. <laughs> one, of the, one of the other sort of relationships that you've built has been with Vint and with Nick early on with the company. Can you just describe just briefly, I guess that story of how you came to get to know Nick and I guess Billy back then at that time, because Billy was pretty early on the team when we, yeah, when Vint started up back in 2019, 2020, that area, can you talk about that? Yeah, Nick and I got introduced through a mutual sort of relationship and someone that, that we both knew that said, hey, you guys are both doing wine things and in Virginia, you should get together and chat. And uh, so it was my pleasure to sit down with Nick and kick around. And really at that point, it was just sort of an idea in his head for what Vint might be. And we had a sort of a couple hour conversation about what his thoughts and plans were. And it was evident to me pretty quickly that Nick had figured out something very interesting and an opportunity that could be very exciting. The background that he brought from the finance world Obviously, I could appreciate given that I shared some of that background and I was really impressed with what he had figured out from a sort of the finance angle on what Vint does. But I thought he was a little bit lacking in our first conversation on his knowledge specifically about (laughs) wine and some of the vagaries and issues about investing in wine and 
some of the history of that and, and some of the inherent challenges. And so my sort of challenge to him in the wrap of our first conversation was really to go and immerse himself in that so that he could build his knowledge of the wine side of things to match his knowledge of the finance side of things. And to his credit, he went off for a few months and did that. And the next time we got together, he was able to present a much more sort of comprehensive and fully formed plan for what Vint would be. And to be honest, that's what Vint became initially and pretty much the same model that that you guys have continued to execute so well on today. So it was really fascinating to see him him go through that and to see the fruition of that become the business and its robust growth that, that you all have been able to demonstrate over the last few years. So it's been, it's been an exciting ride to get to watch. Does your average mailing list client think of their seller as partially an investment or not so much? You know, what's kind of your average client like in that sense? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, we have a couple of what I would call sort of cohorts of customers at VinConnect. So we have the person who went to a winery on their honeymoon in Tuscany, and they want to be able to buy that wine every year and drink it on their anniversary. And that's the wine that they know and love. And they have a little spot of bottles that they keep to always have it around. And so that's more of a a, a novice customer who's joined the mailing list to sort of focus on the one relationship they have or, or one or two relationships they have with the wineries they know. That person's not thinking of it as a collection. Sort of on the other end of VinConnect, we have another cohort of customers who are very savvy wine consumers who are sort of omnivorous. They drink wines from all over the world, the U.S. included. They have a cellar. They're collecting wines. They know the best wines from the various regions of the world, and those are the things they want to drink. And those customers are on 10 or 20 or 50, or we have a handful of customers who are on all of our mailing lists just because they want to get an email every other day, excuse me, from one of our producers to see what the things are that are available. And and at the same time, they're getting 10 emails a day from retailers around the country who are selling stuff. And they are just in the flow of wine and wine collecting and cellaring and those sorts of things. And so that cohort, relatively small, a number relatively high in purchasing power are the kinds of people who are thinking of it as a collection. And then I think to a degree be as an investment. And those things can kind of go hand in hand, I think, for people who are interested in buying and drinking some of the finest wines made in the world. That's one of the neat things about this as something to be interested in is you get to appreciate it and drink it and then have the chance for it to appreciate in terms of a, a yeah. financial sense as well. And, to and, that point, every every wine purchase is, whether it's a $11 bottle or $1,100 bottle is an investment either in the appreciation of the asset or a future investment in an experience at some point. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I like the way you kind of divide into those cohorts. And I think those are interesting how the that first cohort of folks who has a really intimate experience and then is able to keep coming back to that same producer and continue that relationship. I think that really demonstrates the kind of the effectiveness of Bing Connect. That's really cool. That you can yeah, and, and to that. be clear, we don't think of them as VinConnect customers. We think of them as the wineries customers. Oh, I see. 
Now, the customers have to transact through us, and we manage the fulfillment and the delivery and any customer service issues and UPS smash my box and those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. But they're not buying because Kevin said it's good. They're not buying because I gave it a giant score or whatever. I like Gary V do, you know, tasting videos and whatever. They're buying because they love the wine. They met the winemaker. They drank it in a restaurant, whatever. VinConnect is really just sort of the conduit that, that allows that to happen. And so we, we are very focused on making sure that the wineries, brands, and relationships are what's at the forefront. And we're just the folks here in the middle doing our job to make it happen. Cool. The question I was going to ask a bit back is more on the climate change side of things. I'm just kind of curious to hear what you've been hearing since you've had these relationships directly with the producers. What have they been saying? Maybe pick a couple of regions to kind of give like general overviews or maybe even just producer by producer if you want. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously that's a huge topic in wine and with good reason. I think that there there has been a lot of change and evolution around climate. I think one thing that, that goes a little bit unappreciated is that it's not just temperature that is changing or temperature and weather that is changing, the growing conditions in, in, in which wine is increasingly being made. It's also CO2 concentration. And whatever your opinion is on temperature changes and trends, there is no question that we have been going through a period of rapidly increasing CO2 concentration. I mean, it's basically a linear graph. And there have been studies, a number of studies done on the impact of increasing CO2 concentration on the fruit that's produced. And if you just think as simplistically as CO2 is food for the vines and the grapes, Part of what has driven increasingly earlier ripening and and higher concentration and higher alcohol and those sorts of things, it's not just more sunlight, it's also the CO2 part of the equation. And, and so even if we were to go into a cycle where there's a somewhat less temperature pressure, if you want to call it that, I still think as long as China's being China, we can fiddle around and do all we want here in the U.S. with electric cars and CO2 concentration is going to go up until something happens with them. And so so the, I think the trend is ingrained, but almost more broad based than just thinking about it simplistically like temperature. So as a result, the wineries are doing things to respond to that. We've got growing seasons migrating further and further north. We've got wineries in different regions thinking about or to a degree planting new grape varieties that are better suited to different temperatures and different ripening environments. I think the a fantastic thing that's been happening is through this period of evolution, wineries have more and more sort of tools and technology available to them today than they've ever had to deal with these kinds of issues. And the sophistication and the knowledge base that is sort of shared throughout the industry around these topics has really helped the wineries manage this changing growing environment in a way that, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, just that just wouldn't even have been possible. And so I think the industry has been remarkably resilient to date to some of these changes. And I think, I think it's reasonable to, to think that's going to continue. So I don't think it's going to be a desert in Burgundy every anytime soon and that Scotland's going to be where we're growing Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay. But I do think it's, in, in my mind, it's sort of more positive than negative in that I think the environment, or the warming and the CO2 environment is opening up more land for grape cultivation than we've had just looking back over the last kind of 50 to 100 years. And 
with those opportunities increasing, there's more and more terroir that can be discovered and developed and planted grapes to see what kinds of amazing things can be made. And you're seeing emergence of, of regions. Swiss Pinot Noir didn't used to be a thing, at least sort of on the global stage. German Pinot Noir, there's some people, Marcus Mahler and others making friggin' amazing wines that that 15 years ago used to, didn't even exist. Like you couldn't even find them. And so not that there aren't challenges and threats to the industry and changes that we're going to go through, but as a consumer, like I, I think it's as an exciting a time as it's ever been to to discover and seek out new things that the warming and increasing CO2 environment is allowing and creating. So I think there's as much creation as there is destruction or even more creation, to be honest with you. That makes sense. I mean, for somebody like me, who loves just trying new things and I'm constantly drinking new things, I'm right with you. But I do wonder for folks who like a wine that has, you know, they've been drinking it for decades and there's a certain style and then that's starting to slightly change due to some of these changes. Have you heard that from anybody that like you work with or not work with, but that buys from you that's, I like this, but it's different than it used to be or anybody complaining? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think it's as different as it used to be. I mean, the... In many regions, there was an evolution of style that was driven by sort of American palate preference and the prominence of American critics in the sort of late 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. We can talk about the Tuscan wines and Piemontese wines and even stylistic choices that were made in Bordeaux in terms of vinification, where things got really ripe and really fruity and really overextracted. Those stylistic choices have generally swung back to much more, I think, sort of conservative winemaking approaches as a result. And so we're not back to making sort of Bordeaux in the style of the mid-70s, where we had a bunch of crappy vintages and cold weather and lots of rain. And so the wines were lean and things like that. But despite increasing challenges in terms of climate, the style of those wines has become sort of much more rational and restrained and not necessarily reflective of higher temperatures and more CO2. And so it goes back to my point earlier about wineries having more tools and and techniques and approaches available today than they've done before that has allowed them to make choices that help them manage some of those factors in ways that, that they just didn't have the resources to do before. I mean, one example is one of our producers in Tuscany, eight or 10 years ago, the first time I visited them, they were doing basically... They would harvest in the mornings and they would flash cool the grapes for about 12 to 24 hours before they would vinify them. And because they're in a particularly warm spot along the Tuscan coast, that was that was a choice that they made that they really thought helped the wine show more restraint. And now, I mean, I've probably heard half a dozen of our wineries talking about using that technique where it's appropriate for them to do so. So just things like that. I mean, that's just sort of one choice. That, that has allowed folks to manage better. And there are so those kinds of things have the, in the toolbox of winemakers to, to try to craft the kinds of wines that they think are really reflective of the vintage and the terroir and less just sort of hot, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense that we talk about, I mean, I'm with both of you on there being more opportunities to explore new regions and new terroir. I am sympathetic to the idea that wines the wines that we've known, just say 30 or 40 years from now, the wines that we've known may become more monolithic and more singular in profile. So I re- resonate with maybe the 
Billy's concern, but I also hear you, Kevin, that I don't think that's really happening and probably isn't going to happen for a while, right? <laughs> that, well, that change. I mean, we'll, so, we'll see. I mean, the one thing we're sure is it's going to continue to evolve. Yeah. Things will change, though. And so as we maybe look to wrap up here, we're getting closer to our time. What are some of the things that just you, as Kevin Sitters, are enjoying these days that can be domestically here in the U.S. or over in Europe? Just a couple of producers, a couple of things that are interesting to you and that you're drinking. Wow. I mean, again, I'm pretty omnivorous as well. I try to taste a lot of things and there are lots of areas to greater or lesser degrees that, that are capturing or that have captured my interest. So what comes to mind? I'm, I'm drinking more whites these days than reds, curiously enough, I'm trying to go a little lighter on my diet and on my, on my consumption. And so I find that I'm cycling through the white side of my cellar a lot faster than, than the reds these days, which is great because, you know, the, the, the red stuff just gets to age even longer and will be even better when I get around to it. Specifically in terms of regions, I drink, I was pretty early on the rosé bandwagon. It's more of a flavor profile in a region, but I continue to drink a lot of rosé and it's been awesome to see over the last 10 or 15 years, more and more producers. I mean, sort of everybody makes a rosé today, which isn't a great trend necessarily, but the thing that's exciting to me is more and more wineries are producing sort of gastronomic rosés, real high quality wines that happen to be made in the style of a rosé, as opposed to sort of a throwaway thing so that there's a pink bottle on the table. And so I think there are just some fascinating, super high quality rosé wines out there. Domaine de la Morteray is it makes some of my favorites. Sar makes a rosé that's super hard to find and get a hold of. Lopez de Heredia makes a, a, a rosé that's friggin' amazing. And some of these can run in the 60s and $70 a bottle kinds of things. But I mean, they're absolutely fascinating, super great with food, incredibly flexible ageable. I drink rosé with Thanksgiving dinner every year, aged rosé. So that's one of the things that's sort of always on my list. So so high quality rosés is one thing that I'm super excited about in terms of regions. We've started in the last few years to work with a few people in Alto Adige, so northeastern Italy. And that's a place that, again, I think it's sort of benefited from the warming and CO2 trends. The wines there have been able to get more ripe in the last couple of decades than they were able to in the 70s and 80s, let's say. And so producers there like Elena Valk, Ferrari makes sparkling wines up in that area, Alois Legator, Cantina Terlano. There are a number of producers up there that make white wines, Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc, things like that, the Gewürztraminer, as well as sort of lighter bodied reds that are really interesting and super drinkable and very reasonable to, to your point, Billy, from a price point perspective. So I find myself spending a lot of time there. What else? I've been a big fan of Piemonte for a while now. And of course, there's a lot of interest in that region increasingly, both <clears throat> in terms of the everyday wines, as well as things that are collectible. And I know you guys have done a few things with wines from there. An area that is seeing an increasing sort of presence in the U.S. market that, again, I think has benefited a little bit from the warming trends is a region called Alto Piemonte, which is a little further north. There are a couple dozen villages up there that that produce wines that are generally based around the Nebbiolo grape, but have a little bit more floral and higher acidity than, than traditionally Pearl and Barbaresco might. That again, having been able to get a little more ripe recently, have made those wines I think more complex and more interesting. And they're sort of what Barolo was in the seventies and eighties. Now is sort of the flavor profile of Alto Piemonte, and price points there again are more reasonable than Barolo and Barbaresco. So things that are pretty accessible. So 
off the top of my head, those are some of the areas that, that I'm enjoying. And again, the last thing is I just reiterate something I mentioned earlier in terms of like Swiss and German Pinot Noir. There are some beautiful, just elegant, really nuanced, really complex kinds of wines coming out of those areas. They're hard to find and you can run into, it's sort of like Burgundy 40 years ago, you can run into ones that are really lightweight and not particularly interesting or inspiring and maybe have regret for your 50 bucks. But man, when you find your way into some ones that are really interesting, they can really blow you away. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm with you on the rosé thing just for its, especially for its food friendliness and versatility, like you said. And it's one of those wines where you can get a great rosé for super cheap. And also they should probably be priced more for just that very fact, some of the quality of yeah. the top one and the versatility. Yeah. So Yeah, no, and you're seeing that again with some of the top producers, people who are making the gastronomic rosés. I mean, yeah. they've really been sort of aggressive with pricing and, and I think the wines hold up. It, it's fascinating when you, when you compare rosé to champagne. In champagne, the rosé wines are premium priced to the regular sparkling yes. wines. Yep. Yeah, and then in, in the other regions, the rosé is sort of cheaper than the other ones. So, so this notion that, that rosé is can be even better than the regular thing you make is demonstrated in Champagne and uh, and, and I think borne out with, with the producers who really take it seriously in a way that are trying to make something that's right. really interesting and special. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks so much for sharing with us. We are glad to have you as a friend, both in wine and business, and hopefully able to shine some light on the access that you're bringing, especially to wines in Europe. And uh, so we really appreciate you coming on and sharing. No, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you guys having me. And if folks are interested, they can go to vinconnect.com and, and look at the producers with whom we work. Again, it's free to sign up to receive mailing lists from the different wineries. The wineries are generally do a release a couple of times a year, so you won't be flooded with, with spam or anything. And for folks that are your listeners that are interested in sort of collectible wines, again, several of our producers make those kinds of things. And being on the mailing list is a great way to get access to the kinds of things you might have trouble finding other places. And so we're happy to make those available to folks and hope folks take advantage of it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kevin. We'll talk to you soon. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time. All right. I really appreciate it, guys. Cheers. Take care. All right. That was our interview with Kevin Sitters. I hope everybody enjoyed his interesting takes on where the wine world is, his different producers. And yeah, I think he had an interesting perspective on how climate change is also impacting the wines. I didn't think about CO2 emissions as much as he had brought it up. So that was really cool. Also now go check out, it'll be on the Vint website in the next week or so. And we'll link the tasting notes section for the Vint podcast. And we'll make that a little bit more prominent moving forward. And yeah, we'll be back with another interview and podcast next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. 
Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.